You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thank you so much for being here with me. I truly appreciate it. And we're uh, continuing our conversations on the program about education. And I'm here with uh, somebody that I really enjoyed having on last time. We talked about Martin Van Buren. This will be a little bit different. Uh, Gary Frankel is with me. Mr. Gary on Frankel is a Young Voices contributor and a graduate student at Texas A&M University's Bush School of Government and Public Service with a concentration in education policy and management. We're going to talk a little bit about what happened in the midterms and how education policy relates to politics. There are several exciting developments for school choice advocates across the nation. Uh, Gary, thank you so much for joining me again. It is great to, to see you again. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. So, I think Glenn Youngkin. Let's start with Glenn Youngkin because that was sort of a wake-up call for a lot of people in the political world about the importance of education. And I know that inflation and abortion were like the big issues that everybody talked about. But we have several school boards that flipped in the in the local area here. And I imagine that's probably the case across the country. How under-discussed do you think the education issue is in terms of elections right now? Yeah, and the thing about education as an electoral issue that people forget sometimes is that education is at the local and at the state level. So when people are talking about national level issues, education doesn't really come up as much because the federal government has a very limited purview when it comes to public K-12 education. Everything that's really important happens at the state and local level. Now, you take something like COVID, which affected everybody equally in some way. And there was a couple months there where everybody, no matter where you were living, was online. People were really experiencing um, the same sorts of issues, the same problems that everyone else was arguably for the first time. And that's what really brought education to this national forefront. Now, what Glenn Youngkin was able to capitalize on in Virginia is that there are some very specific problems afflicting Virginia's school district. I mean, as bad as we talk about wokeness in education in general in your average school district, it was turned up to 11 in Virginia. And what young Ken was able to do was just give parents a message of sanity is that the point of public K-12 education is to educate students. It's to prepare them to be effective citizens. It's not to give them mediocre instruction in critical theory or to implement all types of social justice social justice initiatives that don't really have anything to do with education. It's meant to teach them to read and do math. And I think that message of sanity is what really resonated with Virginia voters, especially in the suburbs, and propelled Youngkin to victory. So how much... uh, So, I mean, you'll never find... If you did a transcript of every podcast I've ever done, you will never find me using the word woke. I just, I don't like the concept and I'm not, not nothing against you. Um, I, I want to talk about the environment of the conversation around CRT and, and all of that. Um, because I live on Twitter, right? And in Twitter land and in talk radio land where I, where I have existed mainly, um, you'd think that CRT is just 
the only thing ever taught at schools, and it's the only thing that is driving parents to kind of get involved, right? Uh, is that the the hinge on which a lot of parents are getting involved? Is is the is kind of the the new interest in schools just Republicans kind of mad at CRT or? Are there just much deeper problems, and that just sort of gets the headlines? Give me the degrees of this conversation. Yeah. The backlash to critical race theory has undoubtedly been important. It's undoubtedly swayed elections in some areas, but it is far from the only thing in the public education system that parents are upset about. Um, There's also the intrusion of sexuality and gender theory that parents are upset about. Um, In a lot of districts, parents are irritated that districts keep asking for more and more bonds, and then the results are not apparent for anyone to see. So parents are starting to worry if their tax money is being used properly. That's definitely a concern. Um, There's also a lot of concern relating to literacy, um, because if you look at literacy rates among younger generations, they're not looking too hot, Um, and everything is so focused Um, probably stemming from a lot of colleges of education, just certain reading styles, certain ideas that haven't been rigorously tested, but they sound good. So they're all implemented in the schools anyway, and they just don't work. And so there's been a lot of concern about that. Uh, Student behavior is another topic that's being discussed in a lot of local communities, but is going underreported at the national level just because it doesn't sell the same way that something like critical race theory does. But parents are legitimately concerned that their child is not safe in school. And it's not because of gun violence or everything that the left will tell you. It's just because of simple student misbehavior. And there's been a lot of movement in the past 10 or 15 years to adjust uh, disciplinary practices to make them considerably more equitable, but it's not working because students are misbehaving worse than ever. And critical race theory makes all the headlines. There's very good reason for that, but there's also a lot of other issues under the table that some candidates are recognizing and some aren't. And the ones recognizing that the problems with our education system aren't just these surface level ideological issues, they're the ones who are winning because they're speaking directly to parents' hearts. So how did that play out in the 2022 midterms? Yeah, you you could just see it in some of the states. In Kansas, for example, the Kansas gubernatorial election got very little attention. Um, But it was mainly centered around education. And the reason why the Democrat ended up winning was because she got to the heart of the problems in Kansas's education system. She spoke directly to what parents were concerned about and made that a central focus point of her campaign. Whereas the Republican made very vague allusions to school choice. Uh, He made multiple comments about these convoluted plans, but these plans were really nowhere to be found. There were just vague allusions to critical race theory and gender theory being bad, but he wasn't directly speaking to parents' hearts. He spent too much time on the internet, spent too much time listening to some of the national messaging and forgot what people within his state actually wanted. And that's why he lost. It was a close election, But it's kind of concerning whenever a Republican in Kansas loses, even if it's at the gubernatorial level where they have a history of electing Democrats. Uh, You contrast that with somewhere like Florida. Um, Governor Ron DeSantis has definitely embraced a lot of the cultural stuff, 
but he's also speaking to problems that can be directly found within Florida's education system and that there are a lot of families who just want something different for their kids, but they don't have the means or the resources necessary to pursue something different. So what Ron DeSantis did was that he designed and got past the largest expansion of private school choice in the country up to that point. And now thousands of Florida families are able to access opportunities that they weren't able to previously. So even though DeSantis gets a lot of press for being that culture war governor and for very good reason, he's also spoken to the problems that families in Florida are directly facing. And that's why they gave him his support. He won Miami-Dade County by 11. Right. And which is a hugely democratic area. Yep. He won it by 11. He barely lost Barely the city of Miami itself, which was previously unthinkable. And his emphasis on education is a big reason of why big reason why he was so successful in areas that Republicans haven't traditionally penetrated. I I, this DeSantis's performance kind of goes to something that I've surmised uh, that I'd like to be true. Let me put it that way. And that bread and butter issues, traditional issues of of competent governance, and uh, you know things that Mitch Daniels would have championed, praise be his name, uh, will ultimately be what voters care about and what they truly want. They don't want Christopher Rufo; they want you know t- Mitch Daniels talking about education. They they want. They, they don't want the flash, and they don't see the flash, but that's big on Twitter. That's big in these conversations. That's what makes it on talk radio and what drives donations. Um, I, I don't think I have a point. I think I'm just ranting. But, Gary, <laughs> um, I think he kind of proves that point. But give me give me a deeper dive into Florida. Talk about what Florida did differently and how they expanded school choice. Yeah. So Florida created a variety of new programs under the DeSantis DeSantis administration, largely centered on private school choice, giving families an out if they want to leave their public school, but don't really have any other options immediately available or can't afford private school tuition. The DeSantis administration provided those opportunities. But Their answer wasn't just, well, you don't like the public schools. Here's an opportunity to leave. They did a lot to improve public schools as well. Um, This got very little attention uh, because COVID was just dominating dominating everything at the time. But the DeSantis administration implemented one of the largest speech and debate expansions in the country in an effort to make Florida's public schools rich in opportunities for speech and debate, which has been proven to be uh, enormously influential in eventual student outcomes. It teaches them how to argue. It teaches them critical thinking. It teaches them really close reading. It enables them to be more successful in college. And that was another big expansion on the part of the DeSantis administration. Um, Another important component of his broader policy was starting to hit into those cultural issues because they are important. They're just not everything. And he prevented and is in the, still in the process of preventing uh, Florida's public schools from embracing any particular ideology and making that ideology a central focal point of their pedagogical approach at the expense of students who really should be learning reading and math. And if you look at all of the potential categories, the Heritage Foundation did a really nice study of this. 
Florida is now one of, if not the most school choice friendly states in the country. And it's not just about private schools. It's not just about vouchers. It's about expanding all types of opportunities from families to educate their children how they see fit. Yeah, Ron DeSantis is cool and all, but I really do think we do have to say nice things about Jeb Bush. Yes, Uh, he did. He laid the groundwork. I mean, can you talk a little bit about the fight that Jeb Bush started and that Ron DeSantis got the finish and is getting credit for? Yep. Yeah. When Jeb Bush was governor of Florida, this was 20 plus years ago already. um, He was the one at the forefront of some of those initial expansions of school choice. He was the one who started getting the ball rolling on charter schools. He was the one who got the ball rolling on Florida's initial voucher programs that DeSantis would later expand. Uh, He was very up to date with all of the movements on the federal side. Uh, No Child Left Behind, which his brother started. That didn't really work well, but he was on top of all the research and data related to it. Jeb Bush was an education governor, and he was a very good education governor. And he doesn't get a lot of credit for that. And even after his time as Florida's governor. To this day, he's involved in a number of different nonprofits and advocacy groups pushing for school choice expansion. And that is something, as you pointed out, that he gets absolutely no credit for because Trump said some mean things about him and that was the end of his reputation. It, but it's it's, it's uh, in full disclosure I I am uh, the podcast editor for Reimagined, which is an organization that I think he's a part of that's based in Florida. Yeah. That does amazing things for scholarships for, you know, kids with disabilities and kids with, you know, lower incomes to go to school like Jeb Bush in edu- in terms of education is a phenomenal person uh, yep. and should get should get credit for it. And it kind of sticks in my crawl because, you know, uh, I'm not a fan of all of his other policies. I just think that that is in one area where he doesn't get enough credit for sure. Yeah. Um, Jeb Bush has done as much, if not more, for school choice in this country than anybody alive today. Absolutely. And I totally agree with you. Yeah. He needs props for that. He he just needs them. But he won't because 2016. Right. Yeah. Low energy Jeb and... <laughs> Low energy please, Jeb. Please clap. Um, yeah, I... <laughs> I think that's a point that you made really well in your article in the Washington Examiner titled What School Choice Advocates Should Learn from the Midterms, and that the people who had the fundamentals right did well. But the people who didn't, you know, the the Republicans who will talk about CRT and who will talk about this stuff in very surface-level ways didn't get rewarded. Yep. That I mean, that kind of goes... Gary, I think people just think... Oh, everybody's propagandized by Fox News or propagandized by CNN, and nobody thinks deeply about their vote. But I think your article kind of shows that parents and voters really are thinking about deeper issues than what they might see on cable news. Uh, Absolutely. And just for an example of that phenomenon, look at Arizona. Um, I don't care what Doug Ducey's approval ratings were in the weeks and months leading up to the 2022 midterms in which he wasn't a candidate anymore because he was term limited. That man has the fundamentals right when it comes to school choice. That's why he was the one that pushed universal education savings accounts, making Arizona the first state to have a program like that. Doug Ducey gets it. And he never had a problem 
winning a gubernatorial election in Arizona, even when he was dealing with Arizona's swing towards the Democrats later in his tenure. He never had an issue because he knows his state and he got the fundamentals right. And then you have Carrie Lake come in and credit where it's due, extremely polished candidate in every way imaginable. But she didn't have the fundamentals right. Because if she thought that if she appealed to the hard right hard enough and was very in tune with what Twitter was talking about and what was all the rage in terms of the media that it would drive her to victory. But she forgot that she was running in Arizona and Arizona wants to see results. And that's why she lost. So let's talk about the school choice revolution that you've uh, deemed in your article. Uh, We had another guest on Hannah Finkman that talked a little bit about Arizona and how, how big of a deal this is. Start with some of the basics. What happened in Arizona that's going to help children? Yeah, Arizona was the first state to implement uh, education savings accounts. And what education savings accounts are, they're similar to vouchers, but much more flexible. Uh, They're funded similarly, usually from the portion that the state government would have normally sent to a public school, but instead they'll send it to the families directly. And whereas with a voucher, you can only use that money for private school tuition with an education savings account. You can use it for private school tuition, but you can also use it for technology, textbooks, standardized tests, certain types of therapy that you might need, homeschooling materials, just a variety of different programs and resources that all go into a child's education that policymakers don't normally think about. And, um, Earlier this year, Arizona expanded their education savings accounts program. Previously, um, it was only available to certain groups. Now it's available to any public school, any student in Arizona who wants one. And it's the first universal school choice program of its kind in the United States. Um, There's a couple in Europe that beat us to the punch. But it's the first of its kind in the United States. And it gives every Arizona family an opportunity to escape from a public school district that isn't meeting their needs, if that is what they desire. Because if they don't, the money will just go to the public school as it normally would have. Um, And this is a transformative event in the history of school choice, because pre-COVID, implementing a universal program like this would have been unthinkable, just because there would have been too much opposition. But now... After the pandemic and all the debacle about online learning and all the debacle about all the cultural stuff that's going on, parents just want some breathing room. They want options for their children. They want to know exactly how their children is going to be educated. And what these education savings accounts do is that they're able to craft a education that is directly suited to what their child needs. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if Uh, Other states try to implement this model as well, because it is really a model for the school choice movement to follow nationwide. Uh, New Hampshire has something similar, though Arizona's is larger. And that's really the one that people are going to be watching. Did it pass by referendum? Um, It was passed by the legislature. Um, So it just sort of happened at the same time around the elections then? Yeah, yeah, um, it happened at... Time flies really str- strange this year, but it was at least several months ago. So, and 
I, I know that I'm asking a, an obvious question, but what changed for parents in Arizona? What uh, did you? I don't know if there's exit polling or testimonials or what literature have you seen about why this decision was so well supported in Arizona? Yeah, the big difference is is that previously somebody who let's say somebody was from a lower middle class household somewhere in the Phoenix metropolitan area. They would have had access to their neighborhood public school. Uh, they would have had access to charter schools, of which Arizona has a very sizable and high quality network. And they would have had access to some homeschooling materials, perhaps. But they probably wouldn't have been able to afford private school tuition. And they probably made too much money to qualify for some of Arizona's existing uh, voucher and education savings accounts program. But maybe they wanted to send their kid to this one particular private school and they were just a few thousand dollars short of tuition. So they were stuck with the public school that they were largely unsatisfied with because maybe they got waitlisted from a charter school as well. But now what happens is that since the education savings account program has gone universal, they now have access to that extra funding that would previously have been denied to them. And this funding is already set aside to educate Arizona's children. It just would have otherwise gone to their public school because their kid was attending that school. But now it just goes to the family directly. And maybe it satisfies those few thousand dollars that they need to send their kid to that private school that they want. Or maybe that they could afford that private school to begin with, but they couldn't get their student there. Well, now they can use their education savings account in order to contract with a highly trusted rideshare company. And there are a couple of these education rideshare companies around, and maybe they can contract with that in order to send their child to school. Maybe they can, maybe they can buy certain tutoring materials or extra help that they weren't able to previously. And it just creates so many more opportunities, so much more flexibility for families that just wasn't there previously. They were, um, in the most literal sense, stuck in an education system that they were unsatisfied with. So isn't this going to end up destroying public schools? I mean, when you take <laughs> that much revenue away from schools and, you know, they're already feeling budget crunches. I mean, here in Indiana, we have low teacher pay. Uh, there's there's always arguments that we need to fund schools more. Uh, the, the We're just failing our children because we're not putting enough money towards education. And, and an idea like this, isn't that just going to cause the education in public schools to be worse because of less resources. Yeah, that's something I get a lot. And the answer is no. Um, If you look at public school spending since the late 1960s, uh, nationwide, it's gone up by roughly 272%. And that is adjusted for inflation. 272%. Uh, Teacher pay adjusted for inflation has remained essentially stagnant. Um, And the number of employees, as well as the salaries of those employees within central administration of school districts has gone up precipitously. Uh, Meanwhile, test scores have not changed at all. So schools are already receiving a lot of money. They're receiving all the money they could meet. They can need on a per student basis. 
uh, American school funding is among the highest in the developed world. The problem is school districts largely aren't using this money responsibly. They're going towards paying off debt or increasing administrator salaries. Or in the case of uh, my old school district and the previous superintendent, uh, paying his wife a six-figure salary to do essentially nothing. Um, but so schools are already receiving more money that they could possibly need. They're just not using it responsibly. But on the other hand, even if you accept for the sake of argument that school districts are really struggling financially, what happens when that state money leaves though is remember all of this is on a per student basis. Students are generally funded based on seat time. If you're in the chair at that school for a certain period of time, the school gets that money from the state for that student. But now that student is going to be somewhere else. So you would think, oh, the school is receiving less money. But here's the thing. They have fewer students to educate, and they're still generating the same amount of revenue and property taxes that they always were. So theoretically, school districts could spend more money per student under the new educate with the new education savings accounts in place than they were able to previously. And if school districts were really spending with the students in mind, they would be thrilled because now there's a less less of a burden on administrators and instructors. They have more time to spend on each student so they can do smaller class sizes, more amenities, because they're still generating that same level of property tax revenue. But what that means is that they won't be able to hire as many administrators and support staff, et cetera, who often become members of teachers' unions, which means that they're not getting those union dues anymore. The problem isn't that public schools are going to be destroyed. Public schools are going to do just fine, but there's going to be a chink in that teachers' union armor, and that's the real problem. All right, Gary, please give us uh, its shameless self-promotion time. Where can we follow your work? (laughs) <laughs> Y'all can follow me on Twitter at F-R-A-N-K-E-L-G-A-R-I-O-N. All right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Chris. Thank you, listener, for joining us as well. If you enjoyed this, if you learned something, then please share it with your friends. That is the best way that you can help us grow. Thank you so much for listening here on The Chris Spangle Show. Before we start, I want to thank all of the Weird Libertarians patrons for being a part of the show. You can find out all of the benefits of subscribing on Patreon at joinwallplus.com. That's W-A-L-plus.com. You'll get bonus content, access to the complete archives. There's over a thousand shows that you can't get in the public feed, and you'll be supporting all of our great shows. Thank you especially to our $100 a month members, John Pusillo, Vincent Peichel, Lars Nordskog, Jake Dell, Matthew Durbin, Reinhold, Christy Avery, and Jason Doolittle. We also want to thank our main sponsor for this episode. Uh, it is Iconic Insurance. 15% of Americans are left to find health insurance on their own. And even if you get health insurance from your employer that doesn't work for you, Matt Allen and Iconic Insurance can help you find the right insurance. Just head over right now and contact him at iconic-insurance.com slash libertarians. We'll put the link in the description if you can't remember that. But Matt is a longtime listener of this program and a great guy and a good friend of mine. So please go support him and reach out right now. Thank you. And now let's get started with our show.